Welcome back to Brojo Online. Today we're going to be looking at orthodoxy. We're going to be looking at why doing what everybody else is doing is usually the wrong way to do things, and how you have to break the rules and be unorthodox to truly succeed. This is Brojo Online. Masculinity, confidence, and integrity. So one of the hallmarks of my personal history is a tendency, an urge, a desire to do things the right way. I used to use the word grace, a smoothness, a kind of following of the rules, a doing things in the right sequence and the right way with the right intentions. That was kind of a hallmark of my life. It it was spread throughout everything I did. How I brushed my teeth and ate my dinner, through to how I interacted with people, how I did my job, how I played sports. All of these different areas had the same thing in common, the way it was supposed to be done. I was always looking for that and trying my best to live by it. And conversely, I was always bothered when I couldn't do that or when other people didn't do that. You know, if I was playing a sports game and somebody cheated... Uh, It would really, really bother me, even if the game doesn't matter. If I was playing Monopoly with my family, I'd always insist that we did it exactly by the book and didn't change anything. People cheating, bending the rules, that really bothered me. There was a kind of like gentlemanly agreement I had with the world that I would do things the graceful, smooth, proper way. And people who didn't do that were bad in some way. And I thought, you know, if if doing it the right way didn't really work, I just had to do it harder and faster rather than finding a different way of doing it. And that was just a general theme throughout my life. And the reason I'm talking about it today is because I didn't realize for the longest time that that theme was essentially ruining my life. Or perhaps to put it a bit more accurately, it was restricting me and preventing me from living in a way that was fully enjoyable and rewarding. So today we're going to be talking about a slightly esoteric concept, orthodoxy. And I want you to just get in your mind the idea of what do you think is the right way to do things, and start noticing the times that you prefer to do things the right way than the better way, whatever that might mean. Let's start by explaining what orthodox means. Orthodoxy is really doing things the commonly accepted way and believing the commonly accepted beliefs and so on. It's a kind of social harmony and it doesn't mean that you're always doing it socially. You can do it on your own as well. But it's about these kind of patterns and rules of engagement that we follow that we believe in some semi-conscious way is the right way. It's the fitting in with society. Unorthodoxy is the opposite. Unorthodox means breaking the rules. It means doing things differently to how everybody else does them. It means being messy and unclean in the way you do things. It means being much more creative and spontaneous and impulsive rather than considered and thoughtful and appropriate. Orthodoxy is really created by a need to fit in, I think, or a need for order and structure, probably, even more so, because you can do it on your own. 
It's not just about fitting in with society, though when we're in a social situation, it seems to be about that. You can notice it just in the small way you do things. Maybe you like to have the cups and plates in your cupboards just so. There's a certain way that they need to be. And if somebody messes with that, it bothers you. You know, if you have someone else clean your house a different way to the way you clean it, even though it ends up clean, you're bothered by their methods. You think of their methods as wrong in some way. Orthodoxy is that drive for not just you, but everybody else to do things the right way. You might notice yourself give people advice, even though they don't need it. You might give them direction and guidance, even though they can do the thing by themselves, they just don't do it your way. They just don't do it the right way by your standards. And you feel compelled to intervene, like you can't just let them do it the wrong way. You have to show them. It's even with beliefs. Somebody can believe in something that you don't believe in, and them doing so actually has no harmful effect on your life, and yet you feel this strong urge, this compulsion to correct them. You know, I think in my own life, uh, I don't know, an example might be astrology, you know, people who believe in star signs and tarot cards and stuff. Now, them believing in that really does me no harm. Really, uh, if I don't know it's happening, I notice no effects. It's absolutely has no effect on my life. And yet, when I see someone believing in that, I feel a strong compulsion to correct them. There's arrogance almost in my own beliefs that I'm right and they're wrong. And this need to assert that and and control them with it. All along the lines that this is somehow in in, in their best interest. It's all about following rules, following systems and patterns that are validated by others. And this is rarely merit-based. We don't do this because it's shown to be the best way though we might tell ourselves that. The reason we really do it is because it's the way to do it. And what I mean by that is we've established in our minds this is the way, or this is the thing to believe, and we've kind of stopped there and decided no more further investigation. This is the only way. This is the only thing to believe. And now my effort must go into maintaining that rather than challenging it. Put it this way, you'll know Anybody who's been new to a job, or you know, a team of people that you've got to work with, there'll be something they do because they've always done it that way, and yet you know merit-wise, it doesn't make sense. It's not the best way to do it. It's inefficient or pointless or misguided use of resources, and yet you come into a culture that won't let it go, and in fact, you're scared to speak up against it. That's orthodoxy. You see, orthodoxy, I mean, often that word is related to religion. And you can see it in the in the way that religions that have been around for thousands of years, like Islam and Christianity, just absolutely seem to refuse to update to modern standards, despite the fact that the texts have been rewritten many, many times, translated and edited and rewritten. They still hold on to medieval beliefs, rules and commandments you know things that just so obviously don't make sense anymore they won't let them go because that's the way and almost like an unwillingness to admit hey people in the past were wrong we need to update things i saw a great uh, quote on the internet the other day traditions are peer pressure from dead people 
That's a great example of orthodoxy. You know, you do things because they've always been done, even though the people who decided that are dead and gone. We continue their legacy, even if they might have been wrong. And in fact, the further ago it was, the longer time it's been since this was created, the more likely it is to be wrong, because the world constantly evolves. So if you don't evolve with it, if you're doing something for a long time without updating it, it doesn't matter how right it was at the time that you started doing it, it's almost certainly wrong now. Or at least, it's not the best way. So orthodoxy, it's inflexible. It doesn't allow the rules to be broken, even when it makes rational sense to break them, even when it's better to break them. You know, when I was really under the grip of nice guy syndrome, it was really a constant state of orthodoxy. There were rules that I had set for myself, or others had set for me, and I was going to live or die by those rules. You know, I wouldn't allow myself to have any exceptions away from those rules unless I was really drunk or something. You know, I had rules like I could never confront people. And you can imagine how many situations came up where confrontation was absolutely, clearly the best thing to do. But I wasn't able to. I couldn't break the rules. I emotionally couldn't. I'd get all choked up and wouldn't be able to even try to break my own rules. Not that I wanted to. You know, I came up with a rule, you can't show attraction towards anyone. I came up with that rule when I was 13. That's a stupid time in your life to come up with a lifelong rule. What does a 13-year-old know? And yet in my mid-twenties, I was still obeying that rule. Regardless of the counter-evidence I saw, of how many other people's lives were enhanced by breaking that rule, and how mine was miserable because I followed the rule, I still followed the rule regardless. So you can already start to think about in your own life. What are the rules you follow that you'll die protecting even though you can clearly see evidence that they're not the best way. Why do you follow them? What are the rules you follow just to follow? My wife and I were talking about this the other day. You know, there's a lot of superstitions that we have. Um, a real classic one is you can't wish for something because otherwise you're jinxed it, it won't come true. That's a rule. And the idea, you know, the evidence is so strong that that absolutely has nothing to do with anything doesn't matter whether you wish for something or not. It doesn't make a difference. You know, if you're about to have a baby and you hope it's a girl, that's not going to definitely make it into a boy. That's not how science works. That's not how biology works. And yet a lot of people will follow those rules. There's a lot of people who will be superstitious in various ways, even though they'll claim to be rational people. But they'll do it because it's traditional, or because they always did it, because their friends do it. It's normal and common and orthodox. And you can see really extreme examples. You know, we saw this in Milgram's experiment back in the 19-whatevers, way back in the day, where people will obey an authority figure to the point of committing a felony just because the person's wearing a white lab coat. That's orthodoxy. You ever get pulled over by police and you just got this compulsion to just do whatever they say just because they're police? I mean, for all you know, they could be someone pretending to be a police officer, they could be a corrupt police officer, they could just be wrong, and yet you'll just follow them because they're a cop. The same with doctors. You know, I saw a documentary the other day of a woman who had a thalidomide baby, you know, severely um, abnormal and, and malformed, and this was back in the 60s, I think it was, and the doctor said you should give up your baby, and so the mum just did. 
gave up her own baby just because the doctor said you should. The doctor didn't actually have any power of attorney. The mum should have said, no, give me my baby. But back then he just did what the doctor said. That's orthodoxy. And you know you're an orthodox person when you get easily upset by things breaking the rules, by changes, by a lack of grace or smoothness or sense to the way things are done. You know, when somebody wins unfairly, you think that's a bad thing, always. Rather than focusing on the fact that they found a way to be better than the competition, you think it's unfair that they won that way. I remember I was playing a game of rugby when I was in my teenage years, and we came up with this kind of plan. I won't go into the rules of rugby, but there's this thing called a line-out where the ball is thrown in, kind of similar to soccer. And you lift people up to try and grab the ball. And we found out there's a rule that you can't tackle someone until they come back down to the ground. So we'd just lift someone up, and once he caught the ball, the ball, so we'd just lift someone up, and once he caught the ball, we'd just carry him forward over the try line, because nobody was allowed to touch him. Now, technically it was within the rules, but we actually had referees telling us we couldn't do that, simply because they didn't know how to deal with it, and because the other teams got offended and upset by our ingenuity. It's funny to look back now, I'm like, that was a brilliant case of finding an unorthodox yet more successful way to win the game of rugby. And yet people felt it was somehow wrong. I can do whatever I want that's ingenious within what people thought were the translation of the rules. If you break the rules in a way that nobody's done before or isn't commonly accepted, somehow it's wrong. It's even wrong if you stay within the rules. So that's orthodoxy. And it's a bigger deal than people even... Well, people don't think about it very much, but it's a big deal because it's a thousand thousand invisible rules that you place on your life that don't actually make any sense. I'm going to talk about why that is now. I want to mention some examples here. Conor McGregor and Israel Adesanya. They're two mixed martial artist fighters. I mean, Conor McGregor's almost retired at this point. But Adesanya is just in his prime and coming on through. So both of them are well known for a certain strategy and talent they have, which is they're different every time they fight. Adesanya is nicknamed the style bender or the last great style bender. And what this means is he mixes styles. There isn't any one particular martial arts that you can tie him down to. He seems to almost be making it up as he goes along. It makes it... Extremely difficult to fight him because he doesn't follow any of the predicted lines or rhythms of the more common martial arts that are in MMA, like jiu-jitsu and kickboxing and multi and stuff like that. And McGregor's similar. Now he has a certain style, but McGregor will fight differently for each opponent. He'll study his opponent, figure out his weaknesses, and then fight to that. And that means sometimes you watch McGregor and he's on the ground the whole time. Another time he's boxing. Another time he's kicking a lot. Sometimes he mixes them all up. Sometimes he does these weird and fantastic moves that he's never done before and will never do again. He just does whatever's needed to win the fight. And previous, you know, prior to guys like this and some of the other greats in MMA, everybody just it came down to who was better at the style. You had two classic kickboxers against each other it would just be down to who was faster and harder because they'd both be doing the same style it would be predictable to watch really you can almost bet quite 
easily on them. You just say, who's the bigger, stronger guy? Because he's probably going to win. Whereas with these style benders, with these unpredictable guys, you have no idea what they're going to do. And some people are quite uncomfortable with that. Both McGregor and Adesanya get a lot of heat, a lot of shit for this. A lot of people don't like them because they're weird when they fight. I'm just reading a book at the moment called Profit First by uh, Mike Michalowicz. And essentially it's a, it's a way of running your business where you take your profit before you do any of your other payments. And it goes against the most common orthodox business accounting methods that are currently popular. Every other business book tells you, you know, first you, or every other accountant at least, tells you first you've got to make all your payments. Then if you're lucky, you pay yourself a salary. And then if you're really lucky, you make a profit. Whereas this book says, no, no, first you establish what your profit was. And then you figure out how to pay all the rest. It's very unorthodox. Tim Ferriss, in his book, The 4-Hour Workweek, he talks about being unorthodox all the time. And one of the things he mentions was essentially cheating at the sport of Chinese kickboxing. And what he did a long time ago, from his account, was he entered the national Chinese kickboxing competition. Now, he wasn't much of a kickboxer, but he found out about a rule that if you pick someone up and throw them out of the ring, you win by forfeit. So he was bigger than all these Chinese blokes, so he just picked them up and threw them out of the ring. He didn't even bother really learning how to kickbox, and he won the whole tournament. You can imagine how the classic people felt about that. You can imagine how the orthodox kickboxers felt about him kind of just using his size rather than learning techniques. What about the series Breaking Bad by Vince Gill? Now, I didn't know this, but this is the first TV series in history where the main character changes completely from one extreme to the other, from the start of the series to the end. He starts as this lovely, affable, kind of pathetic guy and ends up being this Scarface monster who runs the drug world at the end of it. There is no TV series in history that's ever changed the main character like that. Even all the great series like The Sopranos, Friends, whatever, all the big hits, the main characters didn't really develop much. They got a bit older, a bit wiser, but they didn't really change their core kind of personality. Breaking Bad was the first time anyone's ever done this, and what a monster hit that was. Look at the graffiti artist Banksy. Now, most classic artists put their work on canvas, you know, painters, and they hang it up in galleries, and they get prints made, and you can buy the prints, and so on. Banksy almost exclusively secretly sneaks around and does graffiti, and that's where the the classic art is. Even more recently, um, he sold a piece that he had done on canvas, I think, or on paper, at an art gallery and it sold for fucking heaps. I can't remember. Hundreds of thousands of dollars. But then as soon as the person bought it, there were, it turns out there was a hidden shredder in the in the frame of the picture and the picture was half shredded automatically after the purchase. <laughs> Dave Chappelle, famous comedian, very famously about 10, 20 years ago, it was a long time ago now, was offered $50 million for a TV project and he turned it down and basically destroyed, at least temporarily, his comedy career. 
and he had to go to South Africa to be a comedian for like 20 years um, because he destroyed his career in the States. Turning down $50 million is pretty fucking unorthodox. Especially because he just wanted to maintain his integrity. He turned it down because they were asking him to do something that he wasn't cool with doing. There are a lot of great artists in Hollywood, but very few of them would say no to $50 million, even if it cost them their integrity. What do all these people have in common? Two things. They're hugely unorthodox, and they're hugely successful. And I'm, my point that I'm trying to make today is that those two things are absolutely connected. They're hugely successful because they're hugely unorthodox. And I want to put it even further. I could go on and on listing all the top people in their various fields. And while there are some orthodox people there, what you'll find most of the time at the very peak are the unorthodox people. The people who do what nobody else is doing or what very few other people are doing. They break the rules in some key significant way that gives them an edge and makes them more authentic. Take a moment to consider the orthodoxy in your own life as I share a bit of mine. Especially from my older life. I try to be quite unorthodox these days, but that was quite recent development. Up until last four or five years, I'd been very orthodox. And you could see it throughout my entire life. Especially social rules. Politeness, boundaries, being acceptable, being appropriate, being nice, being good. I had very clear definitions of what these things mean or meant. And I lived by them with a religious rigor. I was really unbreakable in my dedication to the norm, to the status quo, to the way it should be done in my own head. It was really hard for me to set boundaries with people because I had very firm rules about not making anyone unhappy. And that's pretty, un- and, and that, that's pretty orthodox. Most people try to get around in their social life without upsetting anyone. Sometimes they can't help but do it. But most people are trying their best not to, and that's orthodox. There is even a smaller niche that's still orthodox of contrarians, those who deliberately provoke and try to get attention by always being against the grain. Again, it's still orthodoxy because you go against the grain even if you feel like going with it. Even if it's authentic to go with it, you go against it. But most people are just trying to go with the flow, social harmony. It constantly influences every little social decision you make. Every word you utter in a social context is carefully screened for orthodoxy, if you notice it. You're always trying to make sure you say things the right way. Make sure you touch people the right way. Make sure you look at them and look away from them in the right way. There's a clear right way and you almost constantly abide by it. You very rarely break the rules. You can see it especially with humor and especially these days, you know, in the age of outrage. People trying to be funny without offending anyone. It turns out the most bland comedy you could ever find. You know, the best comedy came out in the 80s and 90s when no one gave a fuck about offending anyone. You notice that? That's where all the classic stuff came out. You know, it was after 
the 50s and 60s where everyone was still trying not to offend anyone. But yeah, it really came into its own in that, that kind of couple of decades. That's where the greats came out. And then we hit the new century and people started to say that being offended was something worth considering. And it all got kind of numbed down a little bit. You might notice this in your own life. I, I was I was definitely the funny guy when I was younger. But what people didn't see was the machinery in my head going at flat out speed to make sure that every joke or humorous comment I cranked out might seem risque and hilarious, but definitely didn't actually cross anyone's boundaries. I was kind of a master of that. I could make what seemed like very offensive jokes. I made jokes about fisting or going to the toilet. But I knew my audience so well that I knew that none of the ones who were listening would be offended. And I was always very careful about that. And I always got very comfortable when I was around someone else who didn't seem to obey that rule. Someone who was upsetting the group. Even if I found them funny, I kind of wouldn't laugh because they were making me uncomfortable. Lifestyle balance. I was very orthodox there. Worked the 9 to 5. Watch TV, buy takeaways. Spend your weekends just chilling out or getting drunk. Both. Rinse and repeat. Endless cycle over and over again. That was my lifestyle balance. And that's that's an orthodox lifestyle balance. You notice how few people question the whole 9 to 5 gig? Few people go, why do we have to work so much and get so little free time? Who, who decided that and why do we do it? People just go, oh, that's just the way things are, which is very orthodox thinking. We can see, you know, there's plenty of studies that show that people are only productive for about two or three hours a day in the working day. So why we do an eight-hour working day is ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. We're basically just housing bodies in prison and then releasing them to go home in the evening so that they can spend an hour and a half in traffic. It doesn't make any sense for people to work a nine-to-five. There is no business in the world that thrives on their employees working nine to five, more so than it would if it employed a different, more unorthodox structure. And yet we insist on doing it. Businesses will go out of business just to maintain that status quo. What about alcohol culture? You into that one where you live? It's very rare to be a non-drinker these days. In fact, if you are one in most cultures, you're going to get a lot of shit about it. The opposite is true, of course, and Muslim cultures, but that's again orthodox, it's the opposite there. But I remember when I tried to quit drinking numerous times in my 20s, I got so much shit about it from my friends, even though it was the best thing to do for my health, even though I had doctors telling me to do it. My friends wouldn't accept that as a reason to quit consuming a carcinogenic poison. But notice how people spend, it's part of their lifestyle thing, they'll spend their whole week working for someone else in a very unproductive way and be all stressed out about it so they just get written off on the weekends with alcohol or other people who drink every night or oh, just a couple of glasses of wine with dinner. It's like, no, no, you're an alcoholic. Relax. But that alcohol thing, that kind of just fitting in with everyone, every social event, you have to be consuming a tranquilizer alongside it. You can't just do it sober. That's weird. Unless it's during the day. But even then, you've still got to eat while you communicate with each other. You can't just sit and talk. You've got to have food in between you or a coffee. Now, it's not to say any of this stuff is unpleasant or wrong in any major way. It's just 
It's what everyone does, so everyone does it. And that's the reason everyone does it. There's no higher reason. You're not doing it because it's the right thing to do in terms of productivity, efficiency, quality of life, confidence, anything. You're doing it just because it's the way it's done. It's your only reason. It's a circular argument. We keep doing it because we keep doing it. People who stay in their hometown their whole lives. Again, there's nothing wrong with this, but that's the orthodoxy. Most people do that. It's amazing how many people go traveling. They go to all these places where they're like, wow, this is better than where I live, and so is this, and so is this. Oh, well, I've seen all those places. Now I'll go back to where I live and stay there forever. How many people do that? Why? Why is it considered so weird to finish up somewhere different to where you were born and started? I mean, you don't get to choose your original position. Of the billions of places you could live on the planet, you just get randomly assigned to one as a baby. And yet most people go, well, I guess this will do then. No point in looking further. I did that. I spent 80% of my life in one city. It wasn't even the best city in my country, and I knew it. I knew it was the worst city in my country to live in. Auckland, New Zealand is the worst of all the New Zealand cities. In terms of, I don't know, just quality of life. So stressful there. So packed and busy. It's just like anywhere else in the world. But the rest of New Zealand, scenic, beautiful, relaxed compared to Auckland. And I knew that and I was like, yeah, but I have to live in Auckland for some reason. Dating and relationships. It's still weird for people to see interracial couples. You notice that? Or other little physical differences like the... The woman being taller than the man, perhaps. Or someone who's disabled being with someone who's able-bodied. We've got all these rules. No, no, you've got you to stick with your own type. Why? There's no empirical reason backing that up. It, it makes no sense to stick within your own type. In fact, all it guarantees is more of the same. If you want something exciting, different, something where you're constantly learning, then you almost have to go outside of your little niche. But when I look at my dating life, you know, it's basically just my type, you know, West Auckland, white woman of a certain age, into certain things, almost mirror copies of each other. And that's what everybody I knew did. Most people I knew, they were dating someone they met in their classroom at school or Dating someone who was a friend of a friend, or you get these friend circles that were just interdate all the time. Nobody really like went out on a limb to find someone new and weird. What about learning? How do you learn things? Do you learn things the efficient way? Or do you study like you did in school? Because the way schools do it is fucking awful. Any neuroscientist can tell you that. Okay. Even the top academics admit to it. Check out uh, the TED Talk by Sir Ken Robinson. He talks about how schools kill creativity. The very thing they're supposed to nurture. You know, this is really common. People go to learn a new language. And they go sit down and they do these rote exercises in a classroom. And repeat and repeat and repeat. And they fill out the blanks on the textbook. Awful way to learn how to speak a new language. Just ask any polyglot. Any multi-language speaker, that's not how they do it. But I was the same, you know. I used to just learn things the old way, like 
I taught myself guitar from the old guitar books and you learn the chords from all the songs you'd never listen to if you had a choice. And you learn the scales and you learn the names of the chords. None of this information interests you. But you just do it with rote practice over and over again because that's the way it's supposed to be done. And yet there was that one kid in my class who just went straight to trying to learn Metallica solos because that was his favorite stuff. And within a year, he was the best guitarist in school. How do you explain that? Was he different? I don't think so. He wasn't particularly bright. What about workouts? You notice how people think that muscle growth and development is all about time served? They brag about how long they spend in the gym and how often they go to the gym. Yet uh, you can read Tim Ferriss' book, 4-Hour Body, covers a lot of the science of this. All the top bodybuilders in the world, they have little secrets and tricks, shortcuts. It's not the best way to do things. Just staying there for a long time, going way past your maximum efficiency point and just injuring yourself. For the longest time, everyone's tried to eat low fat. Some people still do it. They still insist on a low fat diet. Because fat is bad. That's the orthodoxy. And it turns out that was a big scam. From the sugar industry or something. But whatever it is, the science isn't accurate on that. Turns out fat's fine. Like anything, if you have it in moderation, it's totally good for you. In fact, necessary for controlling your weight. Replacing it with low fat, high sugar supplements she guarantees you're going to put on weight so take a moment to think about all the things you do how you do it the right way to do it the right beliefs to have and ask yourself am i really sure why do i do it that way has it been proven to me or is it just because it's always been that way is this just time served here am i just fitting in with the way instead of doing the best way I'll tell you what I discovered with all those things I just listed from my own life. Rules are restrictive, not helpful most of the time, especially in social contexts. All those rules I used to follow socially, all they did was guarantee a mediocre social life at best. Yeah, people liked me. People thought I was funny. When people talked about me behind my back, oh, that Daniel's such a good guy. But I had only like two close friends, right? I went for years without any sexual interaction with women. I had no real deep connections or meaningful conversations, nothing. It was just joking around, banter and crap. Most of it, very lonely. That's what following rules got me. And the rule I was really following is that you have to be dishonest to prevent people from having bad emotional reactions. That was the main rule that kind of ruled them all. And when I broke that rule... Where I tried my best to be honest, a rule that I continue to break to this day, my whole social life transformed. I now have a tight inner circle of deep, meaningful friendships who I can be totally myself with and talk about philosophical topics and deep and meaningful shit and don't get bogged down in conversations about cars and the weather, sports. And I'm married to a woman where I don't have to hide shit from her. I don't even have to pretend to be better than I am. She sees me exactly for what I am. First night we're together, I ripped out a massive fart and haven't gone backwards since. I broke all the rules that I thought I was supposed to follow and it worked out brilliantly for me socially. 
And it's not because I have any particular social talent. I'm not even really that likable. The real me is kind of grumpy, if anything. But it didn't matter, because it turns out honesty is what connects people. You don't have to be particularly likable. You just have to be honest, and your tribe will find you, and it's as simple as that. It breaks all the rules, though. All the orthodox rules. All the orthodox rules are dishonest. I found it with humour. You know, I found the darker the humour, the funnier it is. The more likely you are to shock half the room, the funnier you're being. You know, that was a huge one I started breaking. But also another rule, that you have to be funny. That you have to be fun to be around. I started breaking that rule. I started being tired and antisocial and just being whatever the fuck I was. And didn't try to be fun anymore. And for a lot of people, it was just a relief. They could just relax in my presence rather than having to be the audience to the Dan show. When I look at a 9 to 5 now, it it almost makes me sick. Like it, To me, it's the modern version of slavery. Yeah, people aren't getting tied to posts and whipped anymore. But that's about the only difference. Really. The quality of life is pretty much on point with slavery. How people don't see this is beyond me. But of course, I didn't see it for most of my life. I thought I was lucky to have a job. Paid well, blah, blah, blah. And I'd, I'd give up my whole life for it. Every waking minute I had spent helping someone else have a better life. Someone who didn't give a fuck about me. You know, the boss, the CEO, the whatever. And I'd spend sometimes three hours a day in traffic, just sitting in traffic. Explain to me how that's a good life. Explain to me how you know someone's got a good life if they spend three hours a day in traffic. Nowadays, I work about four to six hours a day. And I choose those hours if I want to chill and watch YouTube with my wife and cuddle up on the couch for an hour or two in the middle of the day. I do it. If I feel motivated to do my exercise at 11 a.m. instead of in the evening, then that's when I do it. If I feel like cooking a meal and can't be fuck working anymore, then I don't. And there's nothing special about me. Anyone with half a brain can set this kind of lifestyle up. They can break the rules, set up their own business. I've got plenty of great resources that can help someone do that with pretty much anything. And you don't have to do five years of 90-hour days to get there. You just have to be smart with money. Anyone can do it. You know, I'm so much higher functioning now cognitively that I've quit alcohol that I almost can't believe I ever really drank it. I mean, it's so clearly a poison. And it's so clearly a crutch that disables people from building social confidence. And yet everyone does it. And everyone, like, pressures each other to do it. So here, drink the poison, or otherwise you'll grow into a real person and have actual confidence. We don't want that. You make me feel bad about myself. Here, have another shot of poison. I mean, it literally causes brain damage. (laughs) This is beyond doubt. You can look up the science yourself. I don't even need to try and convince you. Drinking in any sort of, even a small amount, does permanent brain damage. So I looked at it one day and just went, okay, is that worth brain damage? I mean, brain damage was always like one of my nightmares. The idea that you get a big hit in the head and then one day you can't think properly anymore and you don't function right. And people don't realize that that's the life they're living because they're used to it. That's their orthodox. Them being tired at work, them running out of ideas at three o'clock in the afternoon, them forgetting where they put their keys. They think, oh, that's just me being me. 
It's like, no, no, you're brain damaged from alcohol. You wouldn't do any of that shit if you didn't drink. I moved to the other side of the world. I was living in New Zealand, and to be fair, of all the places to be born, you're pretty lucky to be born in New Zealand. You know, most of the rest of the world isn't better than it. And I'm not talking about New Zealand like some sort of national pride. I'm talking about the physical location. It's fucking awesome. Beaches, mountains, everything you want, all in one place. Doesn't get much better. But I did a couple of decades worth of it. You know, I've only got one life. Am I going to do the whole lot in one spot? It's crazy. So I've spent up to a year in the United States as well. I've traveled around Southeast Asia. And now I'm in Europe, exploring all of that. Still plenty to see here, though it is pretty monotonous. A lot of Europe, just like the rest of Europe kind of thing. But there's a whole world over here that I've only just started exploring. So I'm, I'm pretty good here for a while. At least when I'm on my deathbed, I won't be like, oh, I wonder what Europe would have been like. I married a Czech girl. Granted, we're both white, but at least she's from a different culture, you know? Different set of rules that she follows. Fucking different language, a really difficult one to learn, you know? And speaking of that, I'm learning it in a unorthodox way. Instead of going to check classes and stuff, which I did give a go, but we're just... God, just like being back in school where you only retain like 5% of the information. I went online and said, who's someone who can speak seven languages? There's one. How did he do it? And he's got a system. And the system totally breaks all the rules of school, and it's way better. Like when I'm learning words, I act them out. Instead of writing them down, uh, instead of putting sticky notes on stuff around the house, so when I'm using a word like yizva, which means scar in Czech, I make a sort of half-disgusted face, like yizva, like I've just seen a scar, and it helps me remember it. And when it comes to working out now, I do less, but I'm able to maintain it. I'm not sore all the time anymore. And my body functions what it's supposed to do. I've almost mastered handstands, something I couldn't even do when I was younger. Because I'm just following this new way where I do less and I stop before I max out. So that my muscles can do the same thing again tomorrow. Doesn't always work out that way. It's still a work in progress for me. But I found my own way of working out that doesn't follow the rules. I don't go to a gym. I do everything at home with no weights. And I haven't been injured in ages. Except when I broke my foot. But that was from kicking the side of the bed. Different thing. So stop and think, how are you orthodox and why? Because if no one hates you, you're orthodox. Right? If your tribe thinks that you're awesome all the time, then you're orthodox. You're following rules instead of being genuine. And if everyone hates you, then you're contrarian, which is basically just being orthodox in a different direction. Unorthodox means you're going to be bits and bobs of all these different things. You're a mixture of weird and common and it constantly changes. You're not doing anything because it's the right way by other people's standards or the wrong way. You're doing it because you've tested it and found the best possible way that you know how. And you're constantly looking to upgrade that. Because it's fear that keeps us orthodox. And we miss out. We miss out on doing things the best way and having the best experiences. And achieving our potential. We get locked into these restrictive rules. Just to feel like we're doing things in a graceful, smooth, proper way. 
you'd always be looking for the better way. Be a scientist in your own life, constantly experimenting. If you see that you're doing something that everyone else is doing, go, well, what's the opposite of that? And give it a go. Just a check. You know, one thing that stood out to me is Sister something Kenny. I can't remember her name. But she was one of the first people to start treating polio patients with what was essentially a rudimentary form of physiotherapy, massage and stretching and stuff like that. Whereas all the doctors at the time, all the qualified doctors, were putting polio patients in these leg restraints, totally fucking them for life. And she showed them, look, I'm doing this thing, and these kids are actually walking again, and it's helping with the rickets or whatever that polio shit caused. And all the doctors just laughed her out of the room and continued crippling children for decades. Maybe that it's possible that all humans can do something and still be wrong. That massive groups can agree on something being the right way and they can all be wrong. There are a lot of ways that this will play out in your life and you're going to have to figure it out for yourself. But if everyone's doing it, look for the exceptions, especially the successful ones. You know, if you're starting your own business, rather than doing the standard marketing needy bullshit that everyone does, look for someone who's not doing that but is also successful. And when it comes to socializing, instead of looking for those sneaky, manipulative people that trick others into liking them, look for the people who just seem to be totally genuine, and yet it works for them. Look for those outstanding outliers who have found a different way to do things, and they're crushing it. And through that, figure out your own way to live and constantly improve it. And yes, sometimes you'll end up doing something that everyone else is doing, but you won't be doing it because... Everyone else is doing it. You'll be doing it because you figured it out that it was the best way to do things for now. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed that, please get in touch. Dan at brojo.org. If you want any further support or you just have some comments or thoughts or questions. And I will see you all for the next one soon. Cheers. Cheers.